Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, that is where we will begin questions and answer night in just a few moments. If this is your first time here for Q&A, you will find that this is just a little bit different than your uh, average sermon, but I think you'll catch on fairly quick if you'll just hang in here for a minute or two, and hopefully by the time that we're done tonight, you'll find that this was this was time well spent. It is great to see everybody tonight. I hope that you have had a, a good afternoon. It's been a beautiful day, a hot day, but a beautiful day nonetheless. I trust that uh, all of my fellow dads were uh, treated well today. Happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to all. my own dad. I haven't said that to him yet. Uh, today. Uh, it's just been a good day. It's the Lord's Day, and that's the most important part of what's going on today. And it is really good to be back after an exceptional week with the church in Newcastle, Indiana. I will tell you, those folks up there, they planned, and they prepared, and they prayed, and you could tell that they had put in the work to make that a successful meeting, and I do very much believe that the Lord blessed those efforts last week. And I've got to tell you, come Friday night, it was tough to say goodbye to those folks. That was such a good week. But I will say as well that once I got here this morning, I was glad to be home. Glad to see uh, more familiar faces than, than is normally the case when you're in a meeting. And I'm glad to be here at Lakeside. And I'm refreshed. Sometimes maybe we don't think about the good part of gospel meetings, what that does for maybe the local preacher. When he goes away and he comes back, it just stirs him up even more. And I'm back with kind of a renewed optimism about the work that lays before us here in this congregation and in this community. This evening, I have three questions that have been submitted to me that we're going to tackle. And all of these questions come from those first four books of your New Testament, those books that we know as the Gospels. And so we're going to be right there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the entirety of our study this evening. I appreciate Cain's good lesson this morning on baptism because I'm actually going to start Q&A tonight by kind of piggybacking on some baptism ideas. Read with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 3. In verses 21 and 22, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, we read that when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." This is a question that came from our Bible reading a couple of months ago when we were in the book of Luke. And it's a pretty straightforward question. The question is, why was Jesus baptized? Jesus was sinless, correct? Jesus did not need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not need uh, John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. And so why does Jesus find Himself there with John being baptized by Him? Well, I want to say a couple of things about that this evening, and I want to just try to see if I can just do that right here in the Gospel of Luke. And maybe one of the first things that's just kind of worth noticing about Luke's account of Jesus' baptism is that it is... It is rather brief. It is kind of abbreviated. We don't get a whole lot of details from those two little verses. In fact, if we only had Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus, first of all, we would not know specifically where that took place. The other accounts tell us that it was the Jordan River. But in fact, if we only had Luke's account, we wouldn't even know who was the person who baptized Jesus. Luke doesn't give that information. Now, that's certainly not to say 
that John the Baptist and the events that took place there, that John was somehow not important, the fact that Luke would not include his name here. John certainly was an important figure. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. But it does seem that Luke is kind of beginning in his gospel to to kind of taper off the story of John. And he's now going to shift his focus in its entirety to being about Jesus. We've spent a little bit of time talking about John. Now let's focus on Jesus. And maybe that would explain why we don't get a whole lot of those extra details about John and his baptism here. Because Luke wants us to focus on Jesus here. There's lots of things that Matthew tells us, for example. The conversation that Jesus and John had that led to that baptism. Uh, Matthew's account tells us the exact location that it was the Jordan River. There was lots of other people that were being baptized that day. There's lots of other things that Matthew and even some of the other accounts give us details about. And so I guess we could maybe jump over to Matthew 3, which is a more a more lengthy account. And maybe we could try to answer this question from that place. But I'd like to just stay right here in Luke. I'm going to call it right out of verse 21. Notice that first little expression in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3 where it says, when all the people were baptized. That's it. Right there. I believe the main reason that Jesus was baptized is because all of the people were being baptized according to the commands and the instructions of God's prophet. And Jesus, by doing so, was setting an example and a pattern of obedience. You just stop and think about it. If the prophet of the Lord, John would have been such a man, if the prophet of the Lord is preaching a message that says, get ready. You need to get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to be thinking spiritual thoughts. You need to be purifying your life. And one of the ways that you can get ready for this new and amazing movement that is God's kingdom, one of the ways to get ready for that is by being baptized. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be baptized. That's what God said to do. What then would we expect Jesus to do? This is the guy who came along and kept the law of God perfectly. Did everything that God commanded. And so if God is telling people that you need to be baptized, then Jesus, of course, is going to be baptized as well. He's going to do that to serve as the consummate example of what obedience is all about. That's what God said to do, so I'm going to do that. In fact, would you look over in Luke chapter 7? Just jump ahead a couple chapters in Luke. In Luke 7, here is what I think is actually a very underappreciated verse about baptism. And I actually think it adds just a whole nother layer, or maybe a whole couple nother layers of understanding in answering this question tonight. In Luke chapter 7, notice in verse 29. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 29, there's a parenthetical thought that Luke gives here. He says that when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. That that idea there that God is just, it's the idea that God is right. God is right. Well, how do you do that? How do you declare that God and God's ways are right? Well, keep reading verse 29. These people did that by having been baptized with the baptism of John. What I want you to see there is that by being baptized, Jesus was declaring God as just and right. 
There certainly could be other ways in which a person could declare that God is just and God is right. But one of the things that this passage teaches us that John's baptism accomplished is it acknowledged that God's way is right. It is the way. And you might be wondering to yourself, well, what about people who, what about people who didn't do that? What about people who were not baptized in John's baptism? What about people who refused that baptism? People who said, no, I'm not doing that. Well, that's the next verse. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, but the Pharisees, And the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. You stop and take a look at those two verses, verse 29 and verse 30. Where do you think, of those two camps, where do you think Jesus wants to stand? Does Jesus want to stand in verse 29 with the people who are saying, God's way is right. And we want to be a part of that kingdom where God is doing things in His way. Or does Jesus want to be with these people in verse 30 who are kind of just puffed up and arrogant and who have justified themselves by saying, I don't need that. I don't need that baptism. That's for other people. That certainly isn't for me. Where do we expect Jesus is going to stand? I would expect Jesus is going to stand with the people in verse 29. He's going to stand with those people. And by doing so, Jesus is going to set Himself apart from all of the other religious leaders and all of the other movers and shakers of His time, the Pharisees and the lawyers and people looked up to and respected. People would look at Jesus and they would say, Whoa, that guy's different. He was baptized. These other guys weren't baptized, but He was baptized. After all, just stop and think about what would happen. What would happen if, if Jesus never had been baptized and He then embarks on His earthly ministry and he's going around and he's, he's preaching the importance of, of the kingdom of God. And he's preaching the importance of, of obeying God's commands and being ready and being obedient to the Father. But then somebody comes along and they say, well, Jesus, uh, well, how come you weren't baptized? What's Jesus going to say in that moment? Well, I suppose Jesus could say, well, I wasn't baptized because I'm sinless. I didn't need to do that. I don't need to repent. I don't need to be baptized by John's baptism or any other kind of baptism. I don't have to do that. Jesus could have said that. But you know what? If you pay attention in the Gospels and you just watch Jesus, Jesus very rarely says to people, Hey, I'm sinless. Jesus isn't always just throwing that card down. Now, there are some occasions where Jesus makes that point. But that's not something that Jesus just regularly throws around and boasts about. I am perfect. I am sinless. Everybody pay attention to me. Jesus didn't make that a a focal point or a point of emphasis in His time here upon this earth. And that is why it is not inconsistent then for Jesus to say, you know what? People being obedient to God, people wanting to submit to God's way and do what God's told them to do, you know what? I'm going to be a part of that. I'm going to cast my lot there. I'm going to be an example of what it means to obey God. And that is why when you turn back to Luke chapter 3 verse 21, and the text says there that all the people were being obedient to God in baptism, then it really is just kind of a no-brainer. Of course Jesus is going to be baptized. He's going to set the example really for all time of what obedience looks like. Now I realize that we could probably jump over to Matthew's account and we could add some other layers to all of this. We could dig a little bit deeper. 
We can explore what was meant whenever Jesus and John had that conversation in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15. And Jesus says that I need to be baptized by you in order to fulfill all righteousness. And we could pick that apart and talk about what it means to fulfill all righteousness. But I think I'm just going to stand right here. I'm going to stand right here with what Luke has given us. That Jesus is setting the ultimate example of obedience to the Heavenly Father. It is true that Jesus was sinless. And it is true that in that sense, Jesus didn't have to be baptized. But He did it anyway. And that pattern of obedience, man, that ought to speak volumes to us today. Doesn't that say something to you? That here's a guy, he didn't even have to do that, and he did it anyway, because that was part of God's plan. What's that say to us? And what's that say to people who try to resist obeying God's commands, specifically what God commands about baptism. In fact, in just a few minutes, we're all going to stand up and we're going to sing that invitation song that Brandon has selected. And you're going to have an opportunity, if you have never done so before, to be obedient to God's commands by being baptized into Christ. Maybe I ought to specify that here. That's a different baptism than what we read about here in Luke chapter 3. This is a different baptism, different purpose, and a different meaning here. But you need to be thinking between now and the next few minutes about whether you're going to follow the example of Jesus, the Son of God, or whether you're going to do like those Pharisees and the lawyers and reject the purposes of God and as a result suffer the consequences. Keep those thoughts in mind. Let's turn our attention now to a question from the Gospel of Mark. Would you find Mark chapter 16, please? In Mark chapter 16, this question came out of our our Wednesday night auditorium class last quarter. And it has to do with an interesting little detail that Mark records concerning one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Of course, Jesus appeared to a number of different people in a number of different settings, and this is one of those. In Mark 16, we're told here in verse 12, that after these things, Jesus appeared, notice this, He appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. That's kind of an unusual little note. And it has engendered this question here, what does this mean? What is this all about? Why did Jesus appear in another form? And even, maybe more specifically, what exactly was that? What was this other form that Jesus appeared to these disciples in? This is the kind of verse that if you were reading and studying in Mark and in Mark 16, you maybe would just kind of run right by. We get really excited when we get down to like verses 15 and 16 of Mark 16. And so maybe we would just kind of go right past verse 12 without really thinking about this. But when you read verse 12 on its own, it's, whoa, hold on. What is that all about? Jesus appearing in some other form to these disciples? Well, let me start my answer to this by first of all just suggesting that this little reference in Mark 16, 12, it does seem to parallel the encounter that Jesus had with a couple of disciples that we read about in Luke 24. Would you be turning over to Luke 24 now? In Luke 24, there is a record here of a post-resurrection appearance that Jesus has with two unnamed disciples, and there's a conversation that ensues between the three of them as they're walking along on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, this is sometime on that day of Resurrection Sunday, 
We read there in verse 13, in Luke 24, verse 13, that very day, two of them, two of those disciples, they were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. Notice verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. It is that statement in verse 16 that leads me to conclude that this is the same event that is recorded over in Mark 16 verse 12. That Jesus appeared to these people in another form. That Jesus appeared to them and their eyes were kept from recognizing Him and who He was. Okay, why did Jesus do that? Why didn't Jesus want these fellas to recognize who He was and what exactly was going on there? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I like giving those really honest answers on Q&A. I know that's disappointing for people sometimes, but I don't know. In fact, no one really knows because... Because the text doesn't tell us. Mark 16 doesn't tell us. You keep on reading all of Luke chapter 24 there, and it doesn't even really tell us anything specifically. Perhaps, and this is merely a suggestion, perhaps Jesus altered His form and kept them from recognizing who He was because maybe He wanted to use that as an opportunity to to talk with them very honestly and very openly and very, very candidly. Maybe he thought that that would be the best way to get these guys to just, you know, that they're not putting up any kind of defense or, you know, not acting all weird. They're just talking just like normal people. And of course, when you read the conversation, when you read on in the next several verses in Luke chapter 24, it really seems that that is what happens. These guys just have a very frank conversation with Jesus about the events that had just transpired over at Calvary and the days that followed there. And, and they think that they're just talking to some guy. They don't think they're talking to Jesus. They just think they're talking to just some random fella. And that conversation gives Jesus the opportunity to start explaining to them some deep and important truths. Some truths about the mission of the Messiah. Some truths about the Old Testament Scriptures and how they were all fulfilled. Verse 27, for example. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. What an enlightening conversation that must have been. But I'm going to go ahead and say again, we just don't know the specifics of why Jesus obscured or altered His appearance to them. Furthermore and you're really not going to like this, we don't know how Jesus altered His appearance to them. just don't know about all that. I'm just trying to give an honest answer to an honest question. The text just doesn't tell us how that difference manifests itself. I've got all kinds of thoughts and ideas. Maybe maybe somehow Jesus altered the, the, the look of His physical face to them. Maybe Jesus had a different haircut. Maybe Jesus was, you know, a hundred pounds heavier than they remembered him from before. Maybe Jesus was, you know, wearing glasses. That seems to work out pretty good for Clark Kent whenever he's trying to obscure his identity as Superman. I don't know though. Whatever Jesus did, I'm certainly open to suggestions, but I must tell you, I've looked at Mark 16 and I've looked at Luke 24 and I've kind of looked at it until my head hurts and I've come to the conclusion that the Bible just doesn't give. That information. We do know, however, that these guys, these guys that Jesus is talking to, 
They ended up compelling him to come and to sit down with them for a while and talk with them. In fact, let's read that. Look in verse 30. At verse 30, Jesus comes to this, this place where they are to stay with him. Verse 30. And when he was at the table with them, Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then verse 31 says that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then the text says that he vanished from their sight. And so something happened afterward where Jesus allowed them to finally see and understand and perceive that, hey, this is Jesus. And I don't know what that was. I, I wonder if maybe, I wonder if maybe when Jesus prayed and offered thanks for that food, I wonder if maybe just something in the way he offered that prayer, they recognized, hmm, there's something about this guy. Text does say that Jesus, Jesus caused their eyes to be opened here. Whatever it was, they finally realized, whoa, this is the Lord that we've been talking to. I'm going to tell you at the end of the day, there's just a lot about this scene and this, this, this event that we just don't know. Again, I'm open to ideas and suggestions after we dismiss this evening. I'd be glad to hear all that you have to say. But, but I've got a hunch that this is going to be one of those questions that we're going to have to put in God's Q&A box. And when we get to heaven, God will do Q&A night for us throughout all of eternity. As long as long as we've got questions, I think the Lord will have answers for us. We can look forward to that up there. Let's shift now to this third and final question this evening. And it's a question concerning the events around the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is actually a question that I wanted to include in last month's Q&A when we were talking about harmonizing different events in the gospel. When you have gospel accounts, you've got, well, we've got many times four accounts of the same event. And sometimes it kind of looks like this isn't all really working together, at least not at first read. And the question that I've got this evening is, is how do we harmonize the different accounts and what the writers say about Jesus taking or being offered a drink while He was on the cross? You know, if you read all four of the gospel accounts, because all four of the writers do have something to say about this, there could maybe be a little bit of confusion about that. Did Jesus take a drink? Or did Jesus not take a drink? What exactly happened there? And how do we piece all of that together? Let's just get our Bibles working here. Let's start with Matthews. We'll just take these in the, the order that we have them in our Bibles. Start in Matthew chapter 27. And let's start piecing some things together. In Matthew 27... This is Matthew's telling of the crucifixion. In Matthew 27, look down in verse 33. In Matthew 27 and in verse 33, we're told that when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink, and it was mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So here, Jesus is offered something to drink, And he refuses it. And this is actually probably even a reference to something that David writes in Psalm 69 and verse 21, where David would write there that that they gave me uh, poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so at this time, Jesus says, he says no, he refuses it. Now, let's add to that what's found in Mark's account, because Mark's account gives us just a little bit more information A little bit more detail as to why that wine was bitter. What exactly was in that wine? Look in Mark 15. In Mark 15, I'm reading in verse 23. In Mark 15 and in verse 23, we're told that they offered him wine 
mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Mark says that this wine, it was mixed with an ingredient known as myrrh. Now, some people have suggested that myrrh had medicinal properties. And there does seem to be some measure of truth to that. There's lots of information about New Testament times, and myrrh sometimes would be used in conjunction with other things, and it, it, it had, had healthy value to it and medicinal value to it. But I want to say this. There is little evidence that myrrh was ever used as a sedative, as a painkiller. And I point that out because it has often been said that the reason that Jesus refused the drink, the reason that He didn't drink it here, is because Jesus did not want to, He didn't want to dull any of the pain that He was experiencing. That Jesus wanted to fully experience all of the suffering and all of the pain that was going on on the cross. And I've heard that many times before, that that's the reason that Jesus refused the drink, because He wanted to be able to have all of His faculties, and He didn't want to numb the pain in any kind of way. And maybe you've heard that as well. But I'll say again, there is no evidence that myrrh ever functioned as a painkiller. And I think that's kind of maybe even deepened a little bit more when you stop and think about who it is that is offering this wine mingled with myrrh. Who is it? It's not the women down at the bottom of the cross who are crying for Jesus and weeping for Jesus and sympathize, excuse me, sympathizing with Jesus. And they're looking for an opportunity to relieve his pain in some way. They're not the ones who offer him the drink. Who is it that offers the drink? It's the soldiers. The soldiers offered this bitter tasting wine. Matthew and Mark both point out that it was those Roman soldiers who offered this wine. And it is my belief that the reason that they offered the wine at this time was because it was part of the mockery. It was part of this big bunch of mockery that the soldiers had inflicted upon Jesus. You go all the way back to even before the scourging, where they're beating Him, and then after the scourging, they're spitting on Him, and they're putting that purple robe on Him, and plaiting a crown of thorns on His head. And they're making fun of Him. Hail, King of the Jews! And now Jesus, here He is. He's stretched out on this cross. And He's in a position where there's there's no way that He can escape. He is hurting. His body is throbbing and sweating. His mouth, I often wonder, it must have, it just must have been like it was just full of cotton. And so somebody says, well hey, you look like you're having a tough time up there, buddy. How about a drink? And I know that if I was Jesus on the cross, I would be motioning or with my voice as best I could trying to communicate that yes, I do want a drink. And so they go to get that drink, but as soon as they get it up there, they come to find out that it's this bitter wine. It's not even drinkable. Maybe Jesus caught the smell of it. Maybe He got a little bit of it on His lips or maybe even on His tongue. And He has to just spit it out immediately. And how would their reaction be? What would the reaction of the soldiers be? <laughs> oh man, look at you. It's just cruel what's going on here. What a cruel, sick joke to play on a dying man. A guy who is already dying in just the worst possible way. Let's see if we can make him suffer just a little bit more. Let's fake him out with the drink. That'll get us a, a, lot, of, a lot of chuckles. And I think that's made even more clear When we look at Luke's account, would you get Luke's account? Look in Luke 23. In Luke chapter 23, Luke records this in verse 36. In Luke 23 and in verse 36, 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. You see, this whole offer of a drink, it was just done out of mockery. Hey there, Mr. Jesus, want a drink? Hey, you want to do you want you want a drink here? Oh, too bad. It's all sour. You can't actually even drink it. And so it is no wonder in my mind that Jesus would have refused that drink. And Matthew and Mark and Luke all agree. But then we come to John's account. And John shows us that Jesus does take a drink. In John chapter 19, look in verse 28. In John 19 and in verse 28, there we read this, John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, He said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And so verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to His mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Now, I want you to understand here as we look at John's account that Bible critics are going to look at John and they'll look at the other three accounts that we've already looked at and they're going to say, See? See? Told you! The Bible's full of errors. The Bible's full of contradictions. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've got their story all square. But then John comes along, messes the whole thing up. Can't even get their stories right. What do you got to say about that, Mr. or Mrs. Christian? Well, actually, actually, there is no contradiction here. Can you hold your place in John? We're going to come right back to that. Would you go back to Matthew's account? Go to Matthew 27 again. In Matthew 27, Matthew seems to know for certain that Jesus initially turned down the bitter drink. But when you keep reading in Matthew chapter 27, eventually you're going to come across verse 48. In verse 48, Matthew 27 verse 48, one of them at once, they ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. I want to suggest to you tonight that there is a very simple explanation for what some people might perceive as an inconsistency or a contradiction. And that is that Jesus refused the drink at first, but then later He accepted it. Stop and think about the fact for how long Jesus was on the cross. Jesus hung on that cross for perhaps as long as six hours. And I believe that Jesus refused the drink at first because it was bitter. And perhaps Jesus didn't even want to feed in to what He could perceive as continued mockery going on on the part of the soldiers. But what was it that maybe happened later as as the day wore on and as the hours passed by? What was it later that maybe caused Jesus to want to finally take a drink? Can you go back to John 19 again? Look one more time. In John 19, what Jesus knew is He knew that He was almost at the end of this whole terrible ordeal. In John 19, we read in verse 28 again. Look at verse 28. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, He said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Jesus, why are you making it known now? Why do you say, I thirst? Why why do you say that you want a drink? Why are you going to take a drink now? Well, I believe, and I want to be very clear, this this is Josh McKibben's 
suggestion. You take it for what it's worth. I, I, I believe that Jesus asked for and He drank the sour wine here so that He could clear His mouth one final time so that He could then speak one final time and that He could then speak powerfully and clearly so that He could let everyone who was there at the foot of that cross, they would know for certain that He had finished His mission. He has completed the work of God. You know, at this point, it doesn't matter what the wine tastes like. Jesus knows He's at the end. It doesn't matter if it's bitter. It doesn't matter if it tastes awful and rancid. Because now, Jesus with His mouth full of just dry blood... I often stop and think about what all that must have been like physically. What must have been within his mouth. To have that, if you've ever had cotton mouth, I imagine this was nothing compared to that. But now he needs, he needs something so that he can speak and communicate powerfully before he dies. And so the text goes on to say, read again now verse 29. So a jar full of sour wine stood there. And they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. You know, all four of the crucifixion accounts, they show and they depict Jesus dying with power and with dignity and integrity. They tried to strip Him of all of that, but Jesus did not die that way. He died with power and dignity and authority. And I think that Jesus needed just a little something in His mouth so that He could say the words in completing His mission and so that He could say those words in the way that He wanted to say those words. Jesus didn't want to die with just a a murmur or a mumble on His lips. People down at the foot of the cross saying, What did He say? I don't know what... I couldn't hear Him. I think... No! Jesus wanted to be very clear. He wanted to end His work with force and with power so that He could say those words, It is finished. And then give up the ghost. God's redemptive plan could come to its fruition. I believe those ideas help us to explain and to understand the harmony of God's Word, how all of these things work together. And maybe even the greater lesson for us this evening as we get ready to extend the invitation It's great to be able to harmonize all of that. But I concluded with this particular question tonight because I want us to think about the terrible price that was paid in order to author our salvation. You've heard a lot today about baptism and about obedience to God's Word and about what God has offered and what God has made possible in order to redeem you from sin and in order to bring you home to heaven with Him for all of eternity. Sometimes after I hear just a really good lesson about about God's plan of salvation or baptism, I often leave, and maybe you do too from time to time, and you wonder, why are there still people sitting in the pews not yet obeying that gospel? There's people sitting in these pews right now. I can see everyone. There's people sitting here tonight who have never obeyed that plan of salvation. What's the problem? What's the hold-up? What's the hang-up? I ask that with, with all sincerity. I don't ask that in a mocking sort of way. What is it that's holding you up? Is it something we could talk about? Because if it is, I'd like to talk about that. I'll be wearing this orange jacket. I'll be easy to find when the amen is said. 
You come and you grab me. Let's talk about that. I believe the Bible will give us answers to plow through whatever it is that is hindering you from obeying God, following the example of our Lord Jesus responding to our Father in the waters of baptism. Can we have somebody tonight to do that? All things are ready for that to happen. I know Cain, he, the way he concluded the sermon this morning, it was with the earnest expectation that somebody's going to respond. And that's how I'm going to conclude tonight. I know I always check, I check that water every Sunday. The water's ready. People are ready. There's garments and everything is available and convenient for you to be baptized into Christ this evening so that all your sins can be washed away. You can be something new. You can be a child of God. You can be a Christian. Do you want that? I know, I, I, I know that I do. We're going to sing this song to encourage you to, to act upon that and get some of that. That can happen tonight. Brother or sister, let me extend an invitation to you as well. If there is anything amiss in your life, you need to stop and think about the horrible price that Jesus paid in order to make your salvation possible. And you need to think about that if there's sin in your life, what you are doing to that sacrifice. You, you, are, you are spitting on it. You are spurning it and you are treating it as, a, as an unholy thing. You need to repent. I need to repent. As I think about my own life, I need to repent as well. If we can pray with you and encourage you tonight, help you to be a better Christian, then we'd be ready to do that. It'd just be our delight to help somebody to serve the Lord this evening and get on the road to heaven. Whatever your need is, let's do something about it. Let's do it right now while we stand and while we sing.